Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. It's Lon Seidman. It's Monday. Shana Tova to those of you celebrating Rosh Hashanah. And we're here for the weekly wrap-up. And we've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about today, including uh, these things that you see on screen here. A lot of topics to cover today, so let's get to it. And before we begin, I want to thank our newest supporters here on the channel. We'll start with the Super Chatters from last week's premiere of the wrap-up. They are Isaac Hanna and Carol uh, Tremorzinski. I hope I get the name correct there. Let me know if I don't. Uh, we also have some new supporters this week on Patreon, and they are Travis Gianni and Matthew McCoy. I want to thank everyone who contributed to the channel this week and everyone who's been contributing to the channel on an ongoing basis. I also want to thank all of you who watch on a regular basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. So let's take a look now at the week in review. We had two items on the Extras channel. They were both unboxings of things that we reviewed on the main channel. Uh, Those are the iPad 7th generation 10.2-inch device and this great Acer Aspire laptop that has a Ryzen 3 processor. Uh, that sells for about $315. What was neat about the iPad unboxing is that it really took off almost immediately, uh, which led me to really speed up the production of my review of the device. And that's what I often use the Extras channel for, is to kind of gauge the interest out there. A lot of times I'm able to gauge the interest of subscribers, but in the case of the iPad, it was an indicator that there wasn't enough content about this device up on the platform, which was leading it to bring people to my relatively obscure extras channel to get the traffic going there. And then on the main channel, we had a review of both of those items. Again, check out that Acer review if you're looking for a cheap laptop. It's probably the best one I've seen in this price point all year. And then we had our sponsored video from Plex, and this one wasn't going to appeal to everyone, uh, but those who are using Plex on a WD MyCloud might find it helpful because you have to kind of go in the back door uh, to back up your Plex metadata. And this video is showing you how to do that. So if you have that problem, uh, definitely check that out. And then we also did a little live unboxing and mini review session because I got into a new thing on Amazon for live streaming. And I thought I would start simulcasting a little bit to Amazon as I'm going through some of the extras channel productions and whatnot. Now, the funny thing, though, is that I was using the new YouTube live interface to do that video, and I didn't realize I wasn't streaming for about an hour of the stream. So I ended up staying on for an extra hour just to to communicate with all the viewers about uh, various topics. So you can see that uh, video and all the other ones that I did this week linked down below in the master playlist. And this weekend, I appeared at Retro World Expo. I did a great panel with Bob from Retro RGB, and we were talking about FPGA-based game consoles and the impact they have on the retro gaming community. It was a great discussion. Uh, Bob has a great YouTube channel and website. If you haven't seen it, check it out because he does a lot of work on input lag latency and also how to get the best possible images out of your old game consoles on your HD TV. Uh, But he's also got a very healthy interest in the FPGA-based stuff as well, and he offered a lot to that discussion. It really was a great time. Uh, The people in the audience were really engaged and interested and asked great questions and 
we also did a recording of it, and it came out pretty nice, actually. I was really surprised by how good the video and audio was on it, so we're going to have that uploaded a little bit later this week. And what was great about this panel was that I was trying to figure out a way to be able to show people what we were talking about because we were in a pretty big room and these devices we're talking about, especially the Mister, are very little. They're like the size of the smartphone here. So what I did was I uh, got OBS running on one of my laptops and I used a little webcam to show what was going on with the Mister as we were handling it. But then I could use OBS to then cut to the Mister's video and audio for the projector while at the same time capturing all of that, inf- all that footage and information uh, onto the computer so that we can edit it into the actual production we'll put up on YouTube. It really worked tremendously well. And I'm blown away every time I use it by how good OBS has become. It is so useful, not just for game streaming, but also things like this, where you're doing a presentation with multiple input sources. It really makes a big difference, and I think the audience really benefits from having the ability to mix in all of those different things. And it's free. You can't beat the price on that. And, of course, we've got a recording that we're going to be able to mix in as a multicam edit with the other stuff we shot with our cameras while we were there. I was just blown away by how great it worked, and I'm glad it did. And hopefully you'll enjoy that when it gets posted a little bit later this week. And then I also appeared on WTIC Radio here in Connecticut. I come on every couple of weeks to talk about technology trends, and we were talking about the new iPhone. It was a very fun discussion with uh, Ray and Joe D., so you can check that out at the link you see on screen. And these radio appearances I also put into my podcast feed as well, so you can listen to it on the go if you want. And we found a bunch of items in the news this week that we're going to run through. The first one is in Cord Cutters News, and this is about a cable system out in Massachusetts that is cutting the cord. Uh, So normally we hear about consumers cutting the cord, uh, but in this case the whole cable system is saying we're done with TV. If you want TV, we'll sell you the internet and you can stream it from whoever you want from there. And I think what's happening here is that this small cable provider is seeing that they can flip the model uh, because typically if a small cable system like this or even a big one uh, wants to carry local channels or wants to carry ESPN or other cable networks, the cable system has to pay the cable network a per subscriber fee to get those channels. That's how the economics of cable TV have worked for a long time. And that is why you'll also see a lot of these contract disputes going on where a cable network decides to remove itself from a cable system until they work out a better deal. On the streaming side of things, typically Netflix and others will end up co-locating hardware inside the cable system's facility and likely paying for that privilege to get better access to their customers. So Bell can see uh, not only a reduction in overhead costs by getting rid of all these TV network fees, They might be able to pick up additional funds on the other side by renting out room in their facilities to provide those co-location opportunities. And, of course, their overhead rolling forward will be a lot less because all they have to do now is maintain the physical plant and keep the Internet working. They don't have to deal with all these different contracts or anything else like that. I'm surprised it took this long for something like this to happen, but I do suspect we'll see more of this over time as cable systems look at whether or not it's profitable to continue offering television to their customers. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how Apple is loosening up some of its restrictions about third-party repair shops, Uh, but it looks like for their newer phones, you're still going to get some warnings if you take it to a third-party repair shop and they install non-Apple components. Uh, You'll get a warning about your battery or about the display if the repair shop does not use official Apple parts. 
Now, recall when Apple announced their new third-party repair policy, uh, they're going to have these repair shops go through a verification process, which includes a test. Uh, once they pass that test and get verified, they'll be able to buy Apple parts, the official Apple parts from Apple to do those repairs. That's all good. However, uh, what is likely going to happen, though, is that if you have a newer phone that's still in warranty, you won't have the option to use a third-party repair shop because those third parties are going to be authorized to fix only out-of-warranty Apple phones. So it looks like for the first year of like an iPhone 11 Pro here, only Apple will have the official parts. And if you go someplace else to get another battery or a different screen, uh, then you will uh, be getting these messages up. And this might uh, be an issue. So we kind of have like two step, steps forward here, one step back. Uh, and it really does push people into getting the Apple Care warranty. Otherwise, you have to pay replacement costs for the phone if you break it and you don't have Apple Care. So the uh, benefit here for Apple is still with Apple, uh, but it looks like they are loosening up in other areas. But unfortunately, new phones will still have to go back to the mothership. Now, one of the things we've talked about here on the channel is the Google Chromebook end-of-life policy. Uh, what this means is that after Google certifies a hardware platform for Chrome OS, they will support that hardware platform for about six and a half years. It used to be five years only, but they moved it up a little bit. But what that means is that if you bought a Chromebook that is brand new to you, but is based on a three-year-old hardware platform, you may only get a couple of years of support before Google stops updating it completely. And a lot of consumers didn't like that, especially given that these Chromebooks, even after six and a half years, are still very usable in many cases because Chrome OS isn't all that demanding of an operating system. But we're starting to see now some manufacturers uh, doing something to extend that a little bit further. And one example of that uh, that John Simon posted up on the Facebook group comes from Lenovo. And in full disclosure, they sponsored our trip to IFA. But nonetheless, this is something worth talking about. Uh, Lenovo and Google have decided that seven Lenovo devices will now have a longer lifespan, according to this Engadget article. So if you have any one of these Chromebooks, uh, the lifespan on that will go through June of 2025 uh, versus the standard six and a half years that they would have had based on their specific hardware platforms. Uh, and this is probably going to be something I will expect to see from other manufacturers soon too, because some of these are education devices and if you've got a device in education that you can sell with a longer supported lifespan, I think that might be more attractive to a school system that's looking to buy a large number of them. So I would expect we'll see more companies stepping in to maybe help Google extend the support period for these differing hardware platforms. And this is good to see because I think a lot of these Chromebooks are essentially being thrown out even though they are perfectly usable PCs. You can find out more at the link you see on screen. And I found a couple of gaming-related stories that are worth talking about. The first relates to virtual reality, one of my favorite topics. Uh, Facebook had their Oculus Connect 6 conference last week, and according to Upload VR and a number of other publications, uh, there are two big things coming to existing Oculus Quest headsets. Uh, the Quest is the self-contained device that I think does an exceptional job at virtual reality for a relatively affordable entry price, especially given that you don't need a PC or anything else. You just put it on and you're in. And I was really pleased with it when I reviewed it, and I still play with it uh, every once in a while upstairs. Now, they're going to be looking at adding hand tracking to the Quest 
without any additional hardware. It's going to be using the cameras on the Quest to be able to detect your hands in space. Uh, that is not yet available to developers, but it's on the way. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. I think that'll greatly enhance that device for sure. Uh, the other interesting thing was this story from Upload VR, in that you will now be able to use your Quest like a Oculus Rift, which means that you can connect it up to your PC and get the higher performance of your PC delivered uh, to your Oculus Quest. And they're going to be doing that through a USB-C cable with fiber optics built into it to allow you to go longer distances. So the only big hardware here is a USB-C cable that you purchase, but if you have a long enough one already, then you should be able to get away with it as well. It's going to provide power and data back and forth because the Quest will be doing all of its tracking that it's going to shoot back to the PC. The PC is going to render all the graphics and fire that off along with power back to the headset. And we'll see how all of this works when they do release it to Quest owners, which I believe is going to be in November. I'll definitely be covering that uh, when they make that announcement. Uh, the Quest does run at a lower frame rate than the Oculus Rift does. So I think the Rift is at 80 frames per second. The Quest is like 72, I believe, or 75. Uh, and of course, other headsets like the HTC and the uh, other ones in that price bracket run around 90 to 144 frames per second, depending on which one you get. So it won't be as good as a Rift, uh, but I think for a lot of consumers who are just dipping their toe in the VR waters, uh, the Quest is becoming more and more interesting to me, and it looks like it's selling pretty strongly as well. Now, this next story is a doozy, and it involves AT Games and Bandai Namco and the popular arcade game from the 80s, Ms. Pac-Man. Now, if you're not familiar with AT Games, they make these plug-and-play consoles. Uh, they are generally pretty crappy, but they sell at high volume because AT Games is very good at marketing this stuff. They get them into just about every retailer you can imagine, even like convenience stores and drugstores. They're not all that expensive, and because they license all of this original software, they can, they can use all the logos and all the other things that people might remember from the 80s, and this really pushes volume for them. They're very good at marketing, not so good at the hardware that's inside the box that they're marketing. And it looks like they've developed some ill will with Bandai Namco over the years. Uh, a most recent uh, issue with them was that uh, Bandai licensed a bunch of games, including Pac-Man, to AT Games to make a little plug-and-play device. I think it was called The Blast. And this was like a little USB or HDMI stick that you'd plug into the side of your TV, and you could play a bunch of arcade titles on there that uh, at games licensed from all of the rights holders to those games. And, of course, they've put all the IP all over the box and everything. Uh, John Hancock, another YouTuber, got one of the review units in, and he loved it because they had the actual arcade ROMs on it. And I was looking at this thinking, wow, that's a pretty cool little device for such a low price to have arcade ROMs that seem to work pretty nicely on it. But as it turns out, AT Games was not actually selling the device with arcade ROMs on it. They had sent those out to reviewers, but the actual devices that they were selling to consumers were running NES ROMs, certainly a subpar port, of the arcade originals. And of course, John Hancock didn't know that uh, when he reviewed the item. And when people started buying them and seeing that they were getting something very different, it obviously created an issue for Bandai because they look bad because their IP is plastered all over the box. And it looks like they wanted to kind of cut off some future licensing with AT Games as a result of that uh, tarnishment there. Uh, so they denied 
AT Games the ability to use the Ms. Pac-Man license for upcoming products that they wanted to put together. But AT Games was still going around to retailers telling them that they were going to have a Ms. Pac-Man product coming out. And they were basically selling it uh, as something that they were going to have, even though Bandai was not giving them the right to use the license. But there's a little bit of a twist with Ms. Pac-Man, because apparently Ms. Pac-Man is the melding of the original Pac-Man code, along with some code that was developed by a group of MIT students, and they eventually formed a company called, I believe, GCC. And this company, even though they didn't write all of the game, uh, were given a royalty on the sale of the game that looks like was a perpetual kind of royalty. So even anything Ms. Pac-Man you buy today using that code uh, is going to the uh, remnants of this old company, which is now defunct, but there are still rights holders getting a portion of the revenue from the sale of that arcade game. And guess what? AT Games went out and bought the rights to that old company, so now they're receiving royalties from Bandai every time some kind of Ms. Pac-Man arcade game with that code is sold somewhere. And I think that is driving the lawsuit here. So this is going to get crazy, and we'll have to see how it all turns out. But if you read the lawsuit, Bandai is throwing a book at them. They're going after them on false advertising over the issues with that blast plug-and-play and a whole host of other issues. You can read more at the article that you see on screen there. And I'm also going to point you at my pick of the week this week, uh, which is Mad Little Pixel. He's been covering this story in depth. He's got a whole video on the lawsuit. He paid for the actual document and goes through the whole thing on his channel. And he's also covering all the other things happening now with the uh, GCC licensing and all that stuff as well. So it's definitely worth checking out this week. It's going to get crazy. And there's a lot on the line here because I don't think AT Games can really afford to... Uh, absorb losing the suit that Bandai is bringing against them. So this is some high-stakes stuff here, and I think it might impact what we see on shelves this holiday season. Stay tuned and strap in, because this one's going to get a bit crazy, I think. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question, rather a comment, uh, comes in from Random Guy, who's remarking about the state of both the photography and the smartphone business over the last 10 years. Ten years ago, the camera was not a major feature of the phone. It was there, but not great. Uh, Now, of course, the camera is the feature of the phone. And in fact, our phones are more now camera than phone. Uh, If you look on any of the different smartphone manufacturer websites, usually the camera is front and center. Apple's iPhone Pro page is about three-quarters camera, and the rest, some of the other features they added to the mix... And of course, every year they keep adding more cameras to the phones to try to get us to buy new ones. And I've been really impressed by how good the camera systems on most of the major phones have been over the last four or five years to the point where looking at an expensive point-and-shoot camera, to me at least, doesn't make a lot of sense. I got in this camera recently uh, through the Amazon Vine program, and I wrote a review on Amazon, a written one, about how disappointed I was with this camera. On the surface, it looks great. It's got a big one-inch sensor on it. It should deliver really great image quality. Uh, It does 4K video, only at 30 frames per second, though. But there's a lot of little shortfalls with it. The interface is terrible uh, because, of course, the interfaces on these phones are a lot more intuitive. Uh, The 4K video only goes for five minutes because the camera can overheat. And when you're shooting video on it, you can just watch the battery depleting. You get maybe 20 minutes of battery life out of this thing uh, shooting 4K at 30 frames per second. 
And the images, when they come out of the camera, are okay, but you then have to spend a lot of time working on the images to really bring things out through a photo editor. And if you are a professional or a good amateur photographer, certainly editing photos is part of the deal. Uh, but I've been finding now with my smartphones, uh, the more I use them, the less I go over to my regular cameras. My digital SLR used to be in use all the time, even as early as five or six years ago when my daughter was very little. But now I'm taking a bulk of my pictures with the phone, and every year the phones are getting a little bit better. Now, I've got an iPhone. I'm very happy with that. Uh, but Google and Samsung and a lot of other companies have also been making great strides here that make some of these fancy point-and-shoot cameras really unnecessary and a bit clunky when you go back to them after a while. Take a look at a couple of pictures I shot here with my iPhone 11 Pro. This has been unretouched. This is right out of the camera. This is with that new ultra-wide thing. And what the camera is doing here is applying some HDR because uh, the foreground here was lit. And I can guarantee you if I took a picture with that Sony camera, uh, that window would have been blown out. We would barely see my daughter's face. It would have looked pretty lousy. But look at the job this phone does. Again, without any editing on it whatsoever. It took a really nice picture, I thought. And this is something that anybody can grab and do because there's no editing after you're done. It just looks this good. I was really pleased with that. Uh, this is an image I shot with the uh, telephoto lens. Again, this is right out of the camera. My only gripe with the iPhone 11 Pro that I haven't talked about yet is the fact that you do get some of these little lens flares here when you're uh, working out in direct sunlight. That's one thing to keep an eye on. But look how good that looks. Again, without any editing, I did a little bit of editing to it just to uh, darken it up and bring out some of the details better. But overall, I mean, this is great for a camera that you essentially carry around with you. And my battery was still going for the rest of the day after that. And it's just remarkable to me uh, how much these phones are doing in software with those processors that they tell us about uh, to deliver the kind of image quality that uh, we're now seeing out of these smartphones. And it makes you wonder, what's the point of a regular camera anymore when you can get images like this out of a phone without having to lug around a lot of heavy equipment and lenses and everything else like that. Uh, the phone's computers are able to make up for their small sensors and these images just look great. Now, yes, you'd get a better image out of a nice lens and a nice SLR, but in many cases, it's not convenient to have that with you. And even something like this wasn't even taken in portrait mode. This was with the iPhone's 2.0 telephoto lens, and this is just the natural optics of that lens. I think it looks pretty darn good for something so small, portable, and convenient. And in our Q&A for you this week, I would love to hear your thoughts on what you're using to take pictures now. I'm actually feeling kind of guilty that I haven't been keeping my photography skills sharp with my SLR, but again, I can get really good images out of this thing, and it's so much more convenient to not only get those images, but then share them uh, with family and friends. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this down below in the comment stream. Now, our last two questions involve follow-up items from previous videos, and the first one is addressing a topic that I did not cover during my review of the iPad 7th generation, uh, because I said it's largely the same as the prior generation, just with a larger screen and, of course, support for the expensive Apple keyboard add-on. But another thing that I missed and a lot of you reminded me about uh, was the fact that the new iPad 7th generation, although it is very much the same as the previous one, does have an extra gigabyte of RAM. And they found this out through the iFixit iPad 7 teardown, where they take the entire thing apart 
and catalog all of its chips. You can see that uh, linked on screen here. And this is something that Apple never advertises in the product specs of their devices. They never talk about RAM on iOS, whether it's on the iPhone or the iPad. And it's only been these sites that kind of pull those things out. And I think it's largely not important to consumers because I don't think this adds much to the experience. We saw in our benchmarks that it really didn't add any performance to it that we could measure. But I think where you would see the benefit of this extra gigabyte is when you're switching between apps. So in many cases, if you fill up the RAM in one app, uh, you're not going to be able to recall another one very quickly. It's going to have to reload it into memory and maybe put the other one into some kind of stasis mode, uh, which will then require it to reload more slowly in the future. Uh, that is probably one area where you might see a little bit snappier performance when jumping from one app to the next. Uh, one other area I was thinking that might benefit from this uh, might be when they do future operating system updates because those OS updates uh, might require a little bit more RAM to keep all of the features running. And it's possible you could see an extra year or two perhaps out of an iPad 7 with three gigs of RAM versus the sixth generation device with only two. Uh, but I do think they'll continue to support the sixth generation for some time to come here. So that's my take on the RAM. If I missed anything, if you think there's any other benefits, do let me know down in the comment stream. Now, this last question comes in from TransformX, and he was asking this question on our WD MyCloud Plex backup video we did the other day. He's wondering if I'll do a similar one for Synology. And yes, I will right now because it's a lot simpler. Uh, so let me back out of our little presentation here and show you uh, where Plex is stored on your Synology disk station. Uh, so here we have my disk station and all the file shares. And you'll see that we've got one here called Plex. And what happens when you install Plex on Synology is that it creates a file share just for the Plex server to operate from. And they tell you in here not to place any media files in this share because this is strictly used for managing the Plex database. And if you click over here on the library folder that will be in that Plex share and go over to application support, you'll see that's that Plex media server that we were backing up in that video. And we've got all the stuff that you need to back up in order to keep your Plex database safe. And what you could do here is add this Plex share to your Hyper Backup, for example, if you're using Hyper Backup. You could add it to the USB copy utility that they have. You could send it off to the cloud. Anything that you can do normally on your Synology device with a file share, you can do with Plex here because, again, it puts it in a place where users, including the administrator, can get access to it the normal way. You could even just use your Windows or Mac computer to copy it over the network if you wanted to. Uh, one thing you'll need to check, though, is after that directory gets created, is just go over to Properties and Permissions and make sure that the user that you're using on your Synology device has access to that folder. Uh, so you can see the admin user here has read and write control along with the Plex user as well. Uh, so just look for that, and once you apply that and uh, go from there, you should be able to do all of the backups you want without having to do all the other things that we made a 14-minute video about there. So Synology does do it a little bit easier than others. Now, in that video, I referenced a couple of support documents that you might want to take a look at for backing up and restoring your data. And they also have a link on the support document to another page 
that has a list of all of the different platforms that Plex supports and where your Plex media server files will be stored on that particular device. So check it out and make sure you start backing things up because it really isn't something that is clear to the user that you can back these things up. There's no feature within Plex to back up the metadata. So this is the way you do it. And definitely check it out because it is a lot easier on other platforms. In most cases, you just drag the files off and you're done. And Transform here also suggested maybe doing a video about switching file system types on Synology. Unfortunately, that is not that easy because you do have to move your data off and then reformat the drives. But I do have a project here in the studio that I want to get going at some point, uh, which is to move off of my older Synology disk station to a new one. Uh, because the new one I have supports BTRFS, which my old one did not. Uh, So to get that file system, we're going to have to back up the entire uh, NAS, every single bit of data on it, and then restore it over to the other one. Uh, So we're going to look at a couple different ways of doing that in that video, or maybe show the best way. And in preparation for that, I would love to get your thoughts as to the best way to do it. My gut is to do a massive hyper-backup backup uh, from that drive to an external drive and then plug that external drive into the new Synology. Uh, but if there are other ways to do it that I'm not thinking about, do let me know because I do want to bring in all the apps that I'm running as well and really just have a turnkey kind of migration here. And I'd love to hear your experience with that down in the comments below. But we are not going to get to that project this week. I still have to plan that out. So we've got some other things planned for the next couple of days. Uh, we're going to have the panel that I did with Uh, Bob from Retro RGB from Retro World Expo on FPGAs. I'm really excited to share that with you because it was a fun panel to do, as I mentioned. I'm also going to start working on these WISE plugs I just got in. Uh, Like everything else from WISE, these are smart home devices that are not expensive and have no subscription fees. And this is a simple light switch, but it works with all of the other stuff that WISE manufactures and it connects up with the A-Word and Google Home and anything else that supports that ecosystem, including IFTTT. So we'll be looking at those very shortly. I'll have an unboxing up soon on the Extras channel. And on the uh, smart home kick here, I've had this video sitting on my edit drive for the last two weeks, and it's ready to go. Uh, So we're also going to be looking at the Blink cameras. Uh, These are also low-cost devices. These are owned by Amazon now. Uh, No subscription fee, and they're battery-operated, and you can get a good chunk of your outdoor and indoor security needs covered by this device. I've been using these at my house for quite some time, and I will tell you about how I'm using them and also give you a look at their new outdoor waterproof camera that supports two-way conversations. And I also shot this video of the Lenovo USB-C battery pack we got in a few weeks ago, and this one's been working pretty nice. It has a 45-watt USB-C output from its battery. Uh, So that's kind of not unique, but certainly uh, not as common with these battery packs right now. There are a few others now that are starting to make their way to the market, and we'll put it to the test and see how it does. And I got another one that I shot too, which is uh, this little Joy-Con replacement for the Nintendo Switch that adds a true D-pad. This is from Hori. And I picked this up for like 15 bucks the other day, and it's actually been working out pretty nicely. It's got some limitations, but if you were looking at the Switch Lite and were kind of jealous of that true D-pad on it, uh, 15 bucks, and you can get it on your regular Switch as well. 
And again, there will be some limitations to it, but the issues that people were having early on with these in regards to power consumption do not appear to be an issue any longer. I haven't had any issues uh, with battery life since I've been playing with this new little add-on. And again, we'll talk more about it in an upcoming review. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. We also support YouTube memberships as well. So a bunch of you have been doing that and you get a nice cool badge here that will change color the longer you stick around. Uh, so you can also sign up that way if you want. We also have our ongoing relationship with Plex, where if you sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small commission. Uh, we get a slightly larger commission if you sign up for a Plex Pass or gift it to somebody else. And Plex is going to get a lot more interesting in the weeks ahead because they are now bringing in uh, free content from major studios that is ad-supported, and we'll get more information about that uh, as these things get more solidified. So stay tuned. There'll be more to talk about with Plex in the coming weeks. We also have other channels you can follow me on, including my extras channel for unboxings and supplementary content. We have the podcast feed, which offers an audio version of this show, along with my radio appearances and things like the uh, panel discussion that I did. That will be available in audio form sometime this week as well, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, We also have the Snippets channel where we take portions of this show and re-upload them as individual videos. It's actually starting to take off a little bit, uh, so I've been happy to see that. It's been putting all of that effort uh, to good use, so I'm really, really glad to see people are starting to find us through that mechanism as well. And then, of course, we have my live stream archive where you can see the one I did last week along with every other one that I've done, and it goes on for hours. So if you are looking for something just to put on in the background as I tinker with stuff, Uh, check out the live stream archive. We've actually got a lot of different things that we've done on those live streams, and I think you might like it. If you want to get notified when I go live, hit that notification bell so you don't miss anything, and do that on all of my channels so you don't miss anything on those either. And then we have other ways to engage with the channel. We've got my email list at lon.tv slash email. Uh, We only send out email when we've got something really special going on, so don't worry about getting inundated there. Uh, We have my Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook. We've got the Facebook group, uh, which is getting close, I think, to 800 now. We're well over 700 at this point. And that you can find at lon.tv slash Facebook group. And then, of course, we've got the store at lon.tv slash store where I sell things that I've previously reviewed here on the channel at a lower than retail price. But there's only one of everything because it's the item that I actually reviewed on the table here. And if you want to get notified whenever we add stuff to the store, There's another email uh, list for that, which I do send out every time we make a change on the store. And you can get that at lon.tv slash store alert. And we've got that iPad 7th generation in there right now at a lower price than retail. So if you want it, go and grab it. I'll even clean all the fingerprints off of it too for you. So stay tuned. Uh, More to come here on the channel. I want to thank you all for your continued support, uh, both through your monetary contributions, but also through your viewership and just the things that you suggest to me. A lot of the content that we do on this show in particular, but all the other things that I do come from viewers who ask a question. So never be shy. Uh, Keep asking away and you never know, you might end up the topic of a video, hopefully a positive one, uh, by asking that question. So please don't uh, be afraid to do so. And that's going to do it for this week. I want to thank you all for watching. Uh, We're not going to be doing premieres this week or next week, but we'll be back on the premiere uh, thing for the wrap-up here the second week of October. So stay tuned and I'll try to do a few live streams in between to make up for the lack of a chat uh, this week and next. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters. 
including Gold Level supporters, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Chris Allegretta, Tom Albrecht, Mike Talbert, Brian Parker, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.